Hello, hello, hello. This is the Common Sense Party Podcast. It's July 10th. What we're going to talk about today is more critical race theory. Trump's CFO arrested for tax evasion. Supreme Court rules Mitch McConnell. More Mitch McConnell. But let's get it started. Review us on SoundCloud and Google Podcasts. Give us five stars. Make us the number one podcast. Giving everybody the common sense information. Our first story is the CFO of the Trump Organization has been charged with a crime. Uh, the audio is from CNN. Let's get to it. These are, you know, these are, um, you know, a, a corporate car, which everybody has. I guarantee you there's people on this network that have corporate cars. I guarantee you there's people in every company in the country that have corporate vehicles. This is what they're going after. This isn't a criminal matter. Joining me now, staff writer for The Atlantic, David Frum, former federal prosecutor, Elliot Williams. Elliot, so they're acknowledging it. Yes. <laughs> and I think President Trump did something similar in the statement that he put out here, uh, you know, they're saying it's not a criminal matter. These are just perks. You're a lawyer. What's right. your take on okay, that? Well, well, first, my take is don't confess to a federal crime on national television. I would yeah. advise you not to do that, anybody, if you're listening. Um, so, yes, it's, these are perks. Um, company cars are perks. Your gym is a perk. Your parking pass is a perk. You just got to pay taxes on it when it's income. Now, there's a little bit of complexity as to the, the corporate car question because mileage over when you're when you're just driving for your personal uh, benefit versus mileage when you're driving for work is taxed a little bit differently but at the end of the day you have to pay taxes on them and alan weisselberg you're talking about 1.6 million seven six million dollars in untaxed income that is a serious amount it is unlawful it brings liability to both the company and the individual and it's serious stuff and he's downplaying it yeah no question about it and david i was interested in, you were tweeting throughout the at some point this week, you know, several DOJ press releases of people that had, had had similar types of instances that were going to jail for very real time. The president, the former president, doesn't really seem that worried, at least no. not publicly. You know, you wrote a piece uh, a couple days ago, had a bit of a different sense of things. Why? Well, um, you, the, you were reporting this morning about a small group of individuals who didn't believe that federal laws applied to them. And uh, now we're talking again about a different group of individuals who don't believe that federal laws apply to them. And they're about to discover that they do. And thank you. I, I tweeted, I, you just go on the DOJ site, you find lots of people who, um, for amounts as little, I, I found someone who was, had as little as $80 um, and who got sentenced to prison time. I, um, so it, it's a serious matter. There are a couple of things to say about this. One of the things that is that I take away, though, is first, obviously, there's going to be more. Um, I mean, it's not true that people who don't pay taxes on their private school tuition are paying taxes on everything else. And uh, some of the people, in the, some of other people in the Trump organization went to the same private school as Alan Weisselberg's grandchildren. So there is this question about what you know is this a warning from federal prosecutor, from New York prosecutor, sorry, to the Trump organization? Look, these methods are criminal. Um, and you'd better start giving up what the members of the family have done. There's another thing that is also sort of striking is um, Donald Trump is, is supposedly worth, according he says, $2.4 billion. So if you go to the Forbes 400 list and look at the other people who are worth supposedly around the same amount of money, and you look up then their CFOs, and who, who all have very distinguished records, they're not going to risk prison to save $900,000 in taxes over 15 years. And you realize that the Trump Organization operates much more like a, a chain of crooked dry cleaning stores than it operates like a supposedly multi-billion dollar business. And I think one of the... Yes, the Trump Organization is up again in the news. The CFO has been indicted for tax evasion, 15 years 
for a million and something else. Uh, they're just trying to flip, flip him on Trump. So I don't think they'll get Trump. That dude will go to jail, probably like a year. Won't get much. Okay, but to explain more, here is NBC. Company, along with the organization's longtime chief financial officer, have been indicted on charges which involve tax-related crimes. Trump Organization CFO Alan Weisselberg turned himself in this morning to the Manhattan District Attorney. A short time ago, he was escorted to the court in handcuffs to face charges. That indictment has been unsealed. We now know what is uh, in the charges. Grand larceny in the second degree and scheme to defraud in the first degree. And the assistant district attorney told the court Weisselberg avoided taxes of $1.7 million, calling it a sweeping and audacious illegal payment scheme orchestrated by, quote, senior executives. Weisselberg has pled not guilty and has just left the court. There's a lot more to those charges. I want to go to NBC Justice correspondent Pete Williams, who's been pouring through the uh, 25 pages. Tell us uh, essentially what, what these accusations are. Well, the grand larceny statute in New York is often used in these tax evasion cases, and that's basically what this is, Lester. They say that he had an apartment that the Trump Organization paid for for him on Riverside Drive in New York, paid his monthly garage expenses, his utilities, and his rent, that it also paid tuition expenses for members of his family, payment on a Mercedes-Benz for him and his wife, and also, reported, uh, also received unreported cash. Uh, failure to pay his taxes on this, and also uh, taxes on payments made to other executives and employees. So what the, what the district attorney is saying here is that Alan Weisselberg is a CFO, a chief financial officer. He's the one who's supposed to know how these rules and how these laws work. He's the one who monitored all the dollars that came in and out, and surely he should have known that you have to pay taxes on these kinds of fringe benefits. Now, the statute that he's charged under in New York has a maximum penalty of 15 years in prison. Obviously, if he were ever convicted on these charges, his penalty would be much less than that. It's a first offense. And a big key question for him is now, will he cooperate? Because if he cooperates, that could potentially reduce his sentence. And by, in essence, throwing the book at him here for tax evasion, that's clearly what the district attorney is hoping. Hey, NBC. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. They're trying to get him uh, to flip. He's going to go to a, a cushy, not a big, let's see, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm looking for the word uh, federal. He'll go to a federal, but it'll be a country club kind of thing where he gets visitors, gets TVs. He's not a hard criminal. It's a white-collar crime. Uh, stealing money from people, that's what the rich do. But again... The New York AG is trying to get him to flip. I don't think he'll flip. This is Fall Guy 101. Sign, sign him up. Uh, they give him uh, hush hush money. Hush money to go to prison for three to five years, and he don't, he don't say nothing. Again, this is uh, Fall Guy 101. And now we're going to go to MSNBC. Check this out. His latest target, the Manhattan prosecutors, who indicted his company and its chief financial officer former president calling the case prosecutorial misconduct. But he also seems to acknowledge the tax schemes. Watch this. They go after good, hardworking people for not paying taxes on a company car. Company car. You didn't pay tax on the car or a company apartment. You used an apartment because you need an apartment because you have to travel too far where your house is and didn't pay tax. Or education for your grandchildren. I don't even know. Do you have to? But does anybody know the answer to that stuff? Okay. But they indict people for that. Oh, boy. Okay. Joining me now is Jeff Mason, Reuters White House correspondent, A.B. Stoddard, associate editor and columnist for Real Clear Politics. And back with us is Chuck Rosenberg, former U.S. attorney and senior FBI official. Uh, Chuck, I think I have to start with you uh, because it seems like perhaps the president just admitted to everything uh, that the New York prosecutors have accused his companies of doing, basically just saying, uh, yeah, we did it. Why is this a big deal? Nobody understands this. I mean, what did you hear? And if you're one of the prosecutors working on this case, what did you hear? 
good questions, Casey. Look, there aren't a lot of situations that I can think of where I would want Mr. Trump to keep talking. Uh, but if I were a prosecutor on this case, uh, this would be one of them. Because, and without getting too technical here, the rules of evidence uh, that will pertain at trial permit statements by representatives or agents of the company under certain circumstances to be admissible against the company at trial. And so the more he talks, the more he blathers, the more nonsense that he says, particularly about this case and what the company did or didn't do and what he knew or didn't know, uh, all of that might help the prosecutors at trial prove the elements of the crimes against the Trump organization. So, look, uh, I've never um, really thought it was a good idea for uh, individuals or uh, representatives of companies that were under investigation or under indictment to talk. If he thinks it's helpful, have at it. But if I were the prosecutor, uh, I would have the same response. Have at it. Keep talking, because you're helping us. <laughs> well, so, Jeff, let's talk about what this really is about, because it's, it's not necessarily about the criminal investigation for the former presidents. It's about the politics. And so far, we have seen that his base of supporters has been willing to stick with him through thick and thin, uh, and that suddenly, perhaps, even something like this, an indictment of his company, just simply won't even matter to any of them. I mean, do you think that's going to remain true in this case, uh, especially now that you know the president doesn't have keys to Twitter or Facebook anymore? This is kind of the only way right now that he's talking to his supporters and mass. Well, you're right, Casey, that he doesn't have Facebook and Twitter, and that is a, a big difference between uh, the sort of social media levers he had to pull during his presidency and what he has now. Uh, but to go back to what you were saying, President Trump former President Trump has always worked best with foil. And he now has another foil. And so I think the answer to your question in terms of whether or not supporters will continue to stand by him is a definitive yes. Uh, and if anything, this will probably strengthen him uh, politically because it will give him the opportunity to continue to paint himself as being uh, the victim of a witch hunt. That said, um, there are two tracks here, and you referenced them. That there's the political track and there's the legal track. And depending on where that legal track goes, that will have an impact on his political career um, if, you know, as he considers whether or not to run again, uh, his, his legal, the legal jeopardy or the legal consequences he faces continue to rise. So, A.B., uh, let's just pull on that point a little bit more because uh, we know that privately the president obsesses about uh, these things. Uh, we've, we've hear, we're starting to hear even more about just the, the degree to which he does that in some of these books that are, are coming out as we start to uh, get all of that exclusive reporting from the end of, of the Trump administration and the, and the early months of the Biden administration. Um, what do you think his thinking will be in this regard about 2024? I mean, the sort of outward posture is that he doesn't care, but privately, the scenario seems pretty different. Well, I mean, it's been very clear since January 6th when we learned that in the weeks following just how much money the president had raised after he lost the election or it was uh, declared for uh, President-elect Biden on November 7th um, from, from his willing and fervent believers that he would continue to tease out a 2024 run no matter what because it keeps him in the game and it keeps the money flowing. Um, what's interesting about this moment with him using this foil um, of, of this prosecution of Weisselberg and potentially others later, is that he is supposed to be out at these rallies helping Republicans take the House back and, and potentially the Senate in 2022. And what he's doing instead is normalizing crimes. We know that he intentionally normalized lying in his presidency, something that Jonathan Rauch talks about in his new book, um, really exquisitely, and I highly recommend it. It is, it is a tactic of disinformation to make sure that people no longer know what to believe. And the second thing he did is to normalize crimes, like say things like it's no big deal. Why is this a law anyway in this type of talk? And it's clear he's going to continue to do this in sort of a PR campaign at these, quote, you know, rallies where he's helping Republican candidates uh, and I think in the end, while he knows uh, he thinks it's helping him and serving a purpose, uh, it's, it's a really questionable whether or not it's going to hinder Republicans uh, in the midterm elections next year. Check this out. They say he wants a foil, uh, a bad guy. Like he is the worst Karen ever. 
I have never seen someone who cries like a Karen. Uh, all right, he's a, he's a whiny bitch, but whatever. And these Republicans who see, I always say, people see themselves in their heroes. How can you be see yourself in this guy who lies about stuff just because he's rich? Rich don't mean shit. But again, he out there stomping for the Republicans and the. I do apologize, Republicans. Yeah, those in the cult will vote for him, not knowing any better. See themselves in him. See him themselves a hero, and he's a Karen. Yes, I said it. He's a fucking Karen. And to I don't understand why they do this, but we're gonna hear from Roland Martin and Fox News what they talk about it. Check it out. The leaders of white fear in America is Fox News and conservative talk radio. Folks, uh, their newest boogeyman is critical race theory. You want to hear some idiotic stuff? Listen to these fools on Fox and Friends, Steve Ducey, Ainsley Earnhardt, and the village idiot, Brian Kilney. Big difference between now and the 1960s. They're not acknowledging any improvement in our culture, the gains made, and how we are more equal, even despite our faults, than any other country. The other thing is, they're not only trying to raise up minorities and make sure the play, playing field is even, they're trying to take down the white culture. And they're wondering why, and this generation of Americans wonders, why aren't we all Americans? Why are we being marginalized on a daily basis on our gender, our sexuality, and the color of our skin? And it's not even subtle. It is actually out there. Sure. It is written in black and white. This is the big difference between other civil rights movements in our past. One, the first big one was a war. The second big one we saw in the streets, especially in the South. And this one we're seeing in the classrooms, and we've seen the enemy, and it's white people. It's pretty, and they wonder why people have a problem with it. It's pretty simple what most families in America, I think, are teaching their kids. And that's the golden rule, to love others as yourself. Don't see people for skin color. We look to the Bible in my house. We love everybody. Everyone was created by God. And we live in this great country where you can be anything that you want to be, and you can be an individual. This lady's saying they're not teaching them to be individuals. They're trying to uh, instead lump them in as a group based on race. Sure. I want my daughter everybody. to know she can be autonomous. She can stand on her own two feet. She can be an individual and be exactly who she wants to be and, and using the desires that God has given her to right. for a bright future. Well, you know, it, it, it is curious because it was just a couple of years ago where the United States of America elected an African-American as president of the United States. You know, the, the biggest entertainers, the biggest sports stars are African-American. Well, he so, mocked critical race theory. Well, he did uh, over on CNN, absolutely. And we, we played that a little while ago. <laughs> oh, you gotta love the whiny white folks over at Fox News. Tim Wise, uh, he joins us right now. Uh, Tim does all kind of anti-racism work. Tim, you've written a book. One of your books uh, was Dear White People uh, and An Open Letter to White America. And clearly Fox and Friends host didn't read it. Well, no. No, they didn't. I mean, look, first let's be very clear. If you were to take Brian Kilmeade, hold him by his ankles over a bridge and give him two or three minutes to actually tell you what critical race theory was or else you were going to drop him. Let's just say there'd be one less friend on Fox, right? Because he couldn't define it. And I'm not advocating the killing of Brian Kilmeade. Let's be very clear. I'm just saying none of these people who are critiquing what they call critical race theory could define it. They haven't read Derek Bell. They haven't read Kimberly Crenshaw. They haven't read Richard Delgado. They don't know anything about it. What they are using is that as a boogeyman term to refer to any discussion in school about the history of systemic racism in America and the contemporary reality of ongoing systemic racism. They simply do not want that analysis provided. They don't, they don't have a rebuttal to it other than to just say, well, there's no racism because, you know, Obama won. Listen, Benazir Bhutto was elected not once but twice in Pakistan, a woman, but I bet they wouldn't say sexism has been eradicated in Pakistan. Right. The fact and if it were up to white folks, including the ones who watch Fox and Friends, Obama wouldn't have won. White Americans, 
my people, I've been white a long time, I know my people well, most white folks were happier with the thought of Sarah Palin maybe becoming president than Barack Obama. So how are you gonna how are you gonna hold up progress when you weren't part of it? How are you going to brag about the progress we've made and then put a hat on that says make America great again, which means you don't think we needed to make all that progress because stuff was cool 50 years ago and 70 years ago. I mean, the contradictions are massive, but what they all tell us is that there is a group of white folks, probably the majority of white folks, clearly, who are afraid of a counter narrative. We prefer the George Washington and the cherry tree history, even though that story was a lie. George Washington didn't cut down a cherry tree and run and tell his daddy. George Washington barely knew his daddy. His daddy died when George was young. That's all a made-up story. But we prefer that to the truth, which was what? George Washington was a particularly vicious enslaver of other human beings who, when they made the mistake of running away from Mount Vernon, had them tracked down on pain of death and took bounties out on them. That's who he was. Now, if you don't want me to say that because that's unpatriotic, your problem is not with political correctness, it's with historical accuracy. And white folks, for years, we've been able to ignore the truth. Now, the culture, the demographics are such that we're having to confront the things we've tried to deny, and for some folks, it's too painful to look at. Well, if it's painful to look at, imagine how much more painful it's been to live. And that's what black and brown folks have had. Well, what you're dealing with here, Tim, you're dealing with, let's just be clear, the basis of Fox News that Roger Ailes put in place was to push the racial fears of white viewers, older white viewers. Fox News has always, I love it when they they love talking about the new Black Panthers. And uh, the media, they talked about the new Black Panthers more than anybody else, and then criticize the media for covering the new Black Panthers. It was Bill O'Reilly who attacked Ludacris when he had his Pepsi deal. Uh, they've always, it's always been that, and so what you're dealing with now, what critical race theory is, and, and here's a photo here, Amna Nawaz of PBS covered this. This is a Loudoun County school board meeting, and all these white folks turned out, 121 people signed up, and what was hilarious is that the superintendent said, we don't teach critical race theory in any of our schools. But these dumbasses who watch Laura Ingram, who watch Sean Hannity, who watch Tucker Carlson, and now it's like critical race theory is now the banner. Put everything that's racial in under that. Oh, critical race theory. And they have no idea what they cannot stand. And Brian Kilmeade said it. They do not like the fact that black people, Latino people, and Asian people we now get to have an opinion about what it means to be an American. Right. There you go. Uh, I, I double back to critical race theory this week because this clip was kind of eye-opening for me. Uh, Roland Martin is a cool dude. Uh, I kind of like him. He, he acts like I ass sometimes, but it's true. People in power will not give up power willingly. <clears throat> critical race theory is the new boogeyman. They will... Run it till it drops until they get back into office. But guess what? We can't let them do it. We gotta we gotta stand up for teaching the correct history, not the white not the whitewash history. So let's educate let's educate our kids on what the real problem is. Is the system? The system is catered toward a minority that's going to be in 2030 Anglo-Saxons will be the minority in this country and that old time history where they just because you're white you got to uh, you got to get it no not going to happen uh, so we're given the common sense on this podcast uh, so I hopefully I can educate the new people new kids now that don't know what critical race theory is that we can at least give them a, give them a, I guess a foot in the door, I guess. All right. The next topic is voting rights. Uh, in Arizona, uh, I think they went to the Supreme Court, and I guess they favored the laws. I don't know why, but we got to attack this one also where we educate the people. So 
Here we go from CBS. The Supreme Court has issued its final decisions before heading into its summer recess. The court ruled in favor of Arizona's GOP lead voting rights case. The decision was a 6-3 to three split along party lines. Jan Crawford has the latest. It was seen as an important test for new restrictions on voting. Arizona provisions on the books for years that kick out votes cast in the wrong precinct and ban so-called ballot harvesting, where third parties other than family collect and turn in absentee ballots. Neither provision, the court said in a 6-3 vote along ideological lines, violated the Voting Rights Act because they were not enacted with a racially discriminatory purpose and states have a legitimate interest in preventing fraud. That's something Arizona Attorney General Mark Ronovich argued. We want to make sure that everyone has the ability and the right to exercise the franchise, but we also want to make sure that everyone has uh, confidence in the process and they respect the results. And that's what these laws are designed to do. But liberal justices said the decision undermines the Voting Rights Act because laws like Arizona's can be a barrier to minority voting. In a statement, President Biden said he was deeply disappointed in the decision and called on Congress to pass new legislation. At the same time, his Justice Department is suing one state, Georgia, saying its new voting law intentionally discriminates against black voters. The decision today may make that lawsuit more difficult, and as states pass more restrictive voting laws, the message from the justices is clear. This is another sign from the Supreme Court that these are going to be quintessential political judgments left to the political branches of the states. It's going to be increasingly difficult to challenge them in court. Now, on this last day of the Supreme Court's term, no word from Justice Stephen Breyer, who, of course, is being urged by progressives to step down so that President Biden can nominate a replacement. But he's in great health. He's super active outside the court. And he really plays an important role here on this court. So at this point, a retirement from Justice Breyer this year would be a surprise. Lana? All right, Jen, thank you. For more on all this, I want to bring in CBS News legal contributor Jessica Levinson. She is also a professor at Loyola Law School. Jessica, always great to see you. So in terms of the ruling on Arizona voting laws, how might this impact other states' voting legislation? Uh, potentially very significantly. So we know that there have been new voting restrictions passed throughout the country, and we know that even more bills are currently pending. And I think this decision signals to a lot of state legislatures, if you want to pass your new voting law that might have been challenged as too restrictive under the Voting Rights Act, now is your moment because the Supreme Court has essentially said it's very, very difficult to prove that there's been a violation of the Voting Rights Act. I think that's the biggest takeaway from today, which is it's a really hard hill to climb to show that minorities have been burdened enough such that it is improper under the court's current reading of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And Jessica, I also want to ask you about the Supreme Court's ruling on a case from California on Thursday, striking down the state's requirement that nonprofits disclose their largest donors. What impact does this ruling have, and why was California requesting that information? So uh, this is another one where we could see a big impact in states throughout the nation. So I'll start with the last question first. Why did California want this information? This was information that was reported to the IRS, information about major donors to nonprofits, to charities. California Attorney General said, we'd like this information because we oversee nonprofits in this state. We want to make sure that people aren't abusing the corporate form, that these nonprofits aren't engaging in fraud. And the Supreme Court today said, is that really your reason? It just seems like what you want is administrative ease because you can ask federal agencies for this information. Now, that's all kind of interesting, and we see the Supreme Court be very suspicious of California, but I think the bigger news out of this case is that the court announced that it's going to be difficult for states to withstand disclosure laws. The court announced basically a higher level of review that we're now going to use when we're evaluating whether or not disclosure provisions are proper under the First Amendment. If we think back to Citizens United in 2010, Part of the promise of that decision, uh, Justice Kennedy, the majority, said 
yeah, there's going to be a lot more money flowing in our system, but don't worry about right. it because we have disclosure provisions and those will be upheld. And so, you know, as you know, what's the purpose of disclosure? To provide the public with information, to deter corruption and the appearance of corruption. But the court's announcement today of this exacting scrutiny standard, I think potentially calls into question some disclosure uh, requirements throughout the nation and maybe even contribution limits. If we're really going to demand more of the government when it comes to these alleged infringements on the First Amendment, that could really change money in politics going forward. Yep, corruption, man. Corruption's everywhere. And back to the voting rights bill. Congress needs to to update it because they are coming for the poor people. Ballot harvesting is just what they did the last time. It just means that these older folks who who vote absentee and can't make it to the might be not be able to make it to a, a post office box or a lockbox. Someone can actually take it and 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 give it like and turn it in for them. That's kind of, that's a, that's what's ballot harvesting. That's what they're trying to get rid of. But it's, they always, the Republicans always do the exception and not the rule. An outlier. They always say what they will do and then make it illegal. That's something that they would do. They would like, yeah, we'll get all these bills and we'll change it. I mean, get all these votes, these ballots and change them because they gave it to us. And it's like, no, because... This is what I don't understand is like people in power will always excuse me people in power will always stay in power and they just want to go ahead and keep the power to themselves and not give it to the people so yeah so all those voting laws on the books, they might stay on the books at least till 2024 at least until uh, voting because you know the Republicans will slow walk the uh, Senate and House until 2022, the midterms, try to not do anything, and that's just crazy. Uh, yeah, because the DOJ tried to sue Georgia, but they took it off because of that ruling in. The Supreme Court. All right. Our next story is uh, Moscow Mitch. Moscow Mitch is... I don't understand how he's in office so long. I really don't. But... But Moscow Mitch says his number one... His number one um, purpose is to stop everything that Biden does. Here's an example. Now, on another matter, as the Senate headed into the June work period, the Democratic leader laid out an agenda that was transparently designed to fail. A string of far-left proposals that were not intended to become law or to make a difference in the lives of the American people. They were designed to fail and provide political theater for liberal activists. And sure enough, the Senate did reject Democrats' brazen attempt to rewrite the rules of American elections permanently to their own advantage. We did reject their bid to exploit the cause of paycheck fairness to fill the pockets of the trial bar and other radical proposals like the one to impose crushing legal penalties on organizations that fail to conform to left-wing social preferences didn't make it to the floor. But let's remember this was never just about policy. If our colleagues actually believed the substance of their plans were viable, they would have submitted more to scrutiny in committee. We know how things work in this body. When a narrow majority actually wants to make a law, that's not what we've actually seen. So Mr. President, Senate Democrats weren't out to pass any legislation this month. Their designed to fail agenda was supposed to indicate that the institution of the Senate itself was somehow broken. And on this count, our friends across the aisle failed spectacularly. 
See, the framers designed the upper chamber, our chamber, to be a proving ground, a place where good ideas would rise to meet high standards and bad ones would actually fall flat. So this month, our Senate colleagues proved that the Senate is working quite well. We turned away an underhanded attempt to open American employers to a new form of unlimited predatory liability and a hostile takeover of our election system. And the whole time, productive work continued on bipartisan proposals that are actually, actually intended to become law. From infrastructure to agriculture, many of our colleagues have been hard at work demonstrating the right way, the right way to go about legislating. In the Commerce and EPW committees, they've approved smart legislation with wide bipartisan votes. This morning on the floor, we considered another bill from Senator Braun that more than half of our colleagues actually co-sponsored. So as we head back to our home states and take time to celebrate our nation's founding, let's double down on efforts like these and leave designed to fail partisan antics in June. That's what I understand. How is he? They say don't hate the player, hate the, don't hate the player, hate the game. Because he has been in the Senate for a long fucking time. I don't understand how that dude is still there. Because that word bipartisanship, it's a bullshit word. Because all they're doing is slowing shit down so the changes we need the changes we need won't happen because here's another example of he's talking to the side of his face check this out for roads and bridges what we're willing to do I say we the Republicans are willing to do is talk to the administration about an infrastructure package that's really about infrastructure. And so we've laid out about a $600 billion alternative as opposed to $4 trillion paid for that deals with things that we commonly refer to as infrastructure, roads, bridges, ports, waterways, and the like, and broadband. So we'll see whether we can reach an agreement to do something more targeted at what most of us think uh, infrastructure is about. So that's where we are, and uh, I am convinced. You may not agree with me, but I am. I do think there's clearly a slowdown in the number of, of people getting the vaccination. Uh, I think the president said yesterday he thought we probably wouldn't get to the 75% level that would be most desirable to have herd immunity, and so I just want to add my voice to others. We really ought to get vaccinated. It really is a good thing to do, and um, we just have to keep pushing. I, I think one way to look at it, if you're a football fan, yeah, 100% of my focus is on stopping this new administration. I think the best way to look at what this new administration is, the president may have won the nomination, but Bernie Sanders won the argument about what the new administration should be like. Uh, we're confronted with severe challenges from a new administration and a narrow majority of Democrats in the House and a 50-50 Senate to turn America into a socialist country, and that's 100 percent of my focus. Hear what he said? Socialist country. We're not a socialist country. We're the goddamn United States of America. Why does this grim Republican person have control of the Senate? Yes, he has control of the Senate because I blame the Democrats, Kristen Sinema, uh, Manchin, even... The current Democrats, um, who's supposed to be in the majority, who trying to do that bullshit, that bullshit um, bipartisanship when you have the 
majority. Fuck that shit. They lost. They lost the goddamn election. It's time for us to do what we do. Change the country for the better. This dude said it's a socialist country. No, it's not. We, as Americans, we take stuff that are from socialistic countries and we make them better. They're not complaining about Social Security. Only thing they complain about Social Security is how to pay for it. And the only way you pay for it is taxes. And if the top 1% who has 90% of the wealth is not paying their share, of course the system's going to fail. And the Republicans' plan is to make sure that the government fails. Well, this is a little bit of what he said in May. Check this out. In the days ahead. Now, on a completely different matter, today two Senate committees will consider and vote on two very different pieces of legislation. Over in the Russell Building, the Environment and Public Works Committee just approved a bipartisan bill led by Chairman Carper and Ranking Member Capito to invest in better roads and bridges for the American people. This would be the first major action on surface transportation since the FAST Act six years ago. It would raise baseline funding for roads and bridges to an all-time high, and as expected, our colleagues just reported this bill out unanimously, 20 to nothing. That is legislating done right. Our colleagues are modeling the approach that would let Congress build a successful big-picture infrastructure bill later this year. Meanwhile, in the Hart Building, <clears throat> the Finance Committee will spend its afternoon marking up a left-wing partisan bill written fully within the spirit of the Green New Deal. Maximum pain for working American families in exchange for minimal, minimal environmental gain. Under the guise of Clean Energy for America, Chairman Wyden is leading the charge against the most reliable and affordable ways to power our country. The legislation he's drafted is full of the sort of policies that would increase the price of gas at the pump, hike the tax burden on independent American producers, of course, killing jobs, discourage the industry-led innovations have already been reducing emissions without hurting workers, and drag the United States away from energy independence back toward reliance on imports from places like Russia, Venezuela, in the Middle East. <clears throat> in exchange, the bill would have ordinary Americans subsidize the lifestyle preferences of wealthy people in places like New York and San Francisco. So, one committee unanimously approved a smart, targeted, bipartisan approach to key infrastructure projects that America needs, and another will consider a partisan descendant of the Green New Deal that would raise taxes, probably raise gas prices, and leave us with less a less reliable electricity grid. Listen to the trigger words. Green New Deal, left wing, taxes, no work. I, I don't want to say I hate him, but he's just bad for the country. Really, really bad. Uh, moving on to our main story. Uh, we're going to listen to a lobbyist talk about how they work against us. Check this out. Aggressively fight against um, uh, some of the science. Uh, yes. Uh, did we hide our science? Absolutely not. Uh, did we uh, did we join some of these shadow groups uh, to work against uh, some of the early efforts? Yes, that's true. Uh, but there's nothing, there's nothing illegal about that. We were looking out for our investments. We were looking out for our shareholders. And you're not going to be able to just switch to battery-operated vehicles or wind for your electricity. And just having that conversation around why that's not possible in the next 10 years is critically important to the work that we do. 
So, um, and, and, and that's at every phase. That's 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 in the Senate. That's in the House. That's with the administration. Uh, something like climate change. There's forest fires. There's an increase of you know point zero zero one you know Celsius. Um, that, that doesn't affect people's everyday lives. Right. It doesn't. That's the one thing I understand. They say no. It does. The corporations try to save money at the expense of the people who give them money. He's talking about it doesn't affect the everyday lives. Of course it does. But what I do not understand is why people still think that not helping people, your customers, so they can get more money to you doesn't affect you. I really don't understand. Okay, moving on to the next part. We're playing defense because the President Biden's talking about this big infrastructure package and he's going to pay for it by increasing corporate taxes. You stick the highways and bridges, then a lot of the, the negative stuff starts to come out because for you guys because there's it's there's a germaneness, right? There's this it, it, that doesn't make any sense for a highway bill. Why why would you put in why would you put in a uh, uh, something on uh, uh, emissions reductions on climate change uh, to oil refineries in a highway bill? Why would you put something on emissions reductions on climate change to oil refineries in a highway bill? That's what McCoy just said. Now listen. That's just insane. It's just just nuts. It is just nuts. Check this out. Fox News. What they're wanting in their bill is money for the Green New Deal, money for unions, money for electric car subsidies. Uh, they want money for bike paths and hiking trails. And what the American people want, and certainly what Tennesseans want, is to see money for roads and for bridges and interstates and railways and airports. They want to see money for broadband. But all of these other things, all of this that is human infrastructure, that does not belong in a surface transportation or an infrastructure bill. Sound familiar? Again, these people are trying to say that what we need, like, infrastructure is infrastructure, yeah. Why not give us parks so people are more healthy so they don't suffer from obesity and COVID-19 won't be a problem. Be a healthier country. But she said... They don't want that in the interest in a, a highway bill, man. If you if you have the 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 majority, you do what you do. That's why I'm glad they they pushing to get two bills on track where the Democrats have one and they have a bipartisan one, so American actually see that Republicans are working against them. And here's the last piece. Here's the crucial guys for you. Well, Senator Capito, who's the ranking member of Environment and Public Works, Joe Manchin, I talk to his office every week, and he is the kingmaker uh, on this because he's a Democrat from West Virginia, which is a very conservative state, and, and he's not shy about sort of staking his claim early and completely changing the debate. So on the Democrat side, we look for the moderates on these issues. So it's the mansions, it's the cinemas, it's the testers. Other so, ones that aren't talked about is Senator Coons, who's in Delaware, who has a very close relationship with Senator Biden. So we've been working with his office. As a matter of fact, our CEO is talking to him next Tuesday. Mansion, cinema, tester, Coons. Just a shame. Yep, that's what they do. They target the, target the moderates that want to work on this bipartisan bullshit. So they can, what's the word, save their asses? But, again, that's an Exxon lobbyist where they targeted, they targeted the, the moderate, such as our friend, Mr. Manchin, who thinks he's a kingmaker. 
and I hope that the Democrats get the majority, keep the majority, but expand it on the Senate and expand it on the House. That's what they do. People in power are unwilling to give up power willingly. We as a people, we need to get those half-assed people who line their pocket with corporate money. You got to get them out. The one thing I always say is that we need to educate our kids on the process. And the process is broken and this is our shot. I think we can... I'm optimistic that we can actually get some stuff done before the midterms. The test is going to be the midterms. The test on the midterms is do we get information out? How fast do we start? I hope on this podcast that I can get some information out to y'all so y'all know how to vote. Get your IDs because I live in Georgia. They have that new law where they shorten the hours. No excuse draft don't believe that bullshit they're talking about that law is to to make sure that poor people don't vote poor people not poor black people poor people in the urban area there are poor white people but your areas they don't they don't have those long lines that they have in the urban areas when they close down certain stops but this is the common sense party podcast uh we're out again uh, hopefully this educated you on what the common sense party is uh rate us review us at google and soundcloud give us five stars support the the common sense and we're out not while i'm standing Evil's mind.